Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. This week, I'm kicking off a brand new series review of horror legend Wes Craven's meta slasher, Scream. And it's worth noting that Scream 1 through 3 are currently streaming on Tubi TV. Released in 1996, Scream follows Sydney Prescott a year after her mother is brutally killed and begins being terrorized by a masked horror movie-obsessed killer. And joining me for this guest series review is returning friend of the show, Bernie. Hey man, I hope you brushed up on your uh, knowledge of the horror rules. You know, I, I got uh, a sheet with uh, all the horror rules filled out right next to me, so I think I'm ready to go for it. Awesome. So this was my first time watching Scream, and I know you have seen it before. So instead of me kind of asking what your overall perception of the opening was, uh, I just wanted to kind of make it clear, like, this is a movie that even though I had never seen it, its legacy precedes itself in a lot of ways where I didn't know the particulars of the film, but I knew that this was very much supposed to defy the expectations of what it actually is, right? So from the outside, it's very much kind of the traditional, prototypical 90s slasher, but in actually getting to watch it, it's really refreshing to kind of see the direction that Wes Craven took with this movie and really making the focus more about defying expectations, basically at every twist and turn of the movie. And it came out in a way that I thought was really refreshing, considering kind of in revisiting a lot of 80s and especially like 90s or even early 2000s slashers, this movie kind of like highlights a lot of the faults with some of the or most of the run of the mill slashers in a lot of ways. But uh, what did you think of that cold open with Casey Becker played by Drew Barrymore? Uh, I mean, I think in terms of like my childhood anxiety, it probably all started with those phone calls. Um, you know, you know, I remember watching this when I was a kid and obviously I don't have like the the horror background at that point to understand, you know, what these tropes are playing on necessarily. Um, but now rewatching it as an adult, there's so many... I guess, callbacks that we see in different, you know, newer movies that come out now that are kind of an homage to Scream. Um, so it's really interesting to see how this has kind of grown over the years and how, you know, a movie that was, you know, it's semi-funny at some points, you know, really is still one of the, you know, kind of hierarchical, um, I guess, you know, glowing films of, of like the 90s and early 2000s in terms of slasher movies. Yeah, and I think that that very purposeful setting up as a conventional slasher is really smart because it's exactly what you assume going into it, right? You assume, yeah, it's going to be a cute teenager or cute high schooler that is being preyed upon by a masked guy with a knife, right? And that's exactly what it is. And even in that very overly familiar setup, where which is just that, like it's Drew Barrymore home alone making popcorn. She's probably going to rent a scary movie. Wes Craven's able to use a lot of his kind of horror knowledge and his horror experience in making that scene actually unsettling, even if it is overly familiar. Like there's the phone call, which I think is definitely like a reference to when a stranger calls, which there was a shitty early 2000s remake of that. But it's this idea that kind of like the call is coming from inside the house or the call is coming from close by in this case. Um, but it's very interesting that he's able to make this overly familiar scene creepy with that very much that phone call. It's like, what's your favorite scary movie? And the whole thing starts very innocently enough. And yet it becomes more and more unsettling the more that the caller who we learn is Ghostface, the uh, killer of the film, 
like becomes more and more hyped up in a way that ends in the way that it does, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing that with this movie that was always fascinating to me, at least to start, um, it it resonates as something where you can tell that there are hints of other movies into it, but it does it in a way that isn't, I think, overt to an extent. So that's why I think, you know, Wes Craven just did a really good job of carving out that kind of a niche. Um, you know, looking at, you know, since this was your first time uh, watching this, what was, what was your kind of evaluation of it for that first kind of half of it? Was it something where, again, you were, looking at it kind of more so in the light of this is a, a goofy kind of a film or were you um, kind of entranced by it? I mean, I really, it really resonated with me right from the opening just because it, it's very clear that this is supposed to be a horror comedy in a lot of ways throughout the whole movie, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. And you can tell just how big of an impact Wes Craven being at the helm of it has on the final product. Because one of the problems that I have with a lot of horror comedies is that it either leans too far into one direction, right? So it's either like, how is this a horror comedy? Cause there's nothing funny about it. Or this is just a comedy. There's no, none of the like remnants of a horror film in it. But in this, I love that again, it's a lot of it is done with humor in mind. Like there's a tons of gags where like first instance, uh, Ghostface gets fucked up the entire movie, right? He gets knocked on his ass. He gets the shit beat out of him. That never happens in these movies. Like, yeah, Michael Myers falls off of the roof or, uh, Jason Voorhees gets shot in the chest at one point, but they always end up getting up, right? But in this instance, it's more about kind of like Ghostface is not really a formidable threat, which is hilarious. And yet the entire film still carries itself like a horror movie, especially that cold open where the entire thing is shot almost like a horror movie and it has a lot of tension in it. And yet he's like drilling her on horror movie facts uh, and He's kind of like nagging her essentially over the phone. And it's kind of like very humorously presented, especially when he like turns around in the window and he, she smashes him in the face of the phone. Like that's a pretty funny gag. And yet the way the scene ends with Drew Barrymore getting gutted and hung from a tree, like that's an element of horror comedies that I think really falls apart a lot and that it slacks on the gore. It slacks on the actually kind of like building tension because you're too busy kind of laughing at the ridiculousness or the slapstick nature of it. And even though Scream has those kind of slapsticky moments, like, again, he gets knocked on his ass at one point, uh, a character who's like whipping beer bottles at him and they're smashing against his face, which is like, yeah, that's funny. But at the same time, the film backs it up with the kills in a satisfying way that I think is key to being like a slasher in a lot of ways, even if it's being this like meta horror film. I mean, I, I agree with you 100% on that. I, I found that at the beginning, again, you know, there are certain moments where you're kind of screaming at the TV to, to egg the character, in this case, Drew Barrymore, to do, you know, one thing in terms of calling the police. But um, that scene where he stabs her in the neck and she's trying to, like, scream out to her parents who are, I mean, they can't be any more than 10, 12 feet away from her, and they just walk away as, uh, you know, he ends up killing her. Um, that's probably one of the more, that whole scene is one of the more iconic scenes, I think, in horror history. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, speaking of Drew Barrymore's character, I wouldn't know this, obviously, because, let's see, how old was I? I was four when this movie came out. But this movie was marketed around Drew Barrymore, which in and of itself speaks to the meta nature of the movie in that 
she's on the cover of the poster, like that's her covering her mouth in the poster, and the trailers and promotional material heavily featured her. So based on the marketing, you assume, yeah, it's Drew Barrymore. She's a big name, especially at that time. She's going to be the star of the movie. And the fact that Wes Craven kills her off in the first 15 minutes of the movie, like it completely goes against the idea of a big name star being in a slasher movie. Like, again, I knew that going into the movie just because, again, this movie is so prevalent in horror history and its reputation and the reasons for that reputation pretty much precede it. But it's an incredibly ballsy move even now. Like, I can't imagine. I mean, nowadays, people get pissed when that happens. In terms of like, uh, I would say a, an example from my film history or whatever is my friends and I went to go see Godzilla, the 2014 one. And spoiler for that movie, Brian Cranston gets killed in the first like 45 minutes of the movie. And we were pissed because he's so heavily featured in the marketing. And yet for a movie like Godzilla, that's played very straight, like it, traditional, it's a drama, it's a zombie, it's a monster movie and all these different things. For this movie, though, it makes perfect sense because it's like the whole movie is taking the piss out of slashers and 90 slashers um, in a way that I think that opening sequence, like you said, it's so iconic because of the things that it does. And it's so self-aware in a way that, I mean, I would say almost only with outside of a handful of horror comedies, they just they're not that self-aware in what they need to capitalize on. Right. I mean, I think it's safe to say that uh, Drew Barrymore's character was like the Ned Stark of the 90s and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, For that moment, at least. And and I will say, too, I mean, I think they did a really good job of casting this. Um, all the characters did a really good job of playing their own version, right? I think um, specifically in, in terms of like, you know, Stu, Billy, and Randy, I think we all knew guys uh, for the most part that were like that in high school. Um, so they were very realistic in the way they portrayed all the way up to Courtney Cox playing uh, Gail Weathers, the reporter. Um, just to that effect, too, I think they did a really good job of, of putting the people, the right people in place to kind of move along the movie and, and the narrative in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that for the most part, again, this kind of speaks to the meta nature of the movie in that all of these different characters in the movie, they all fit an archetype, essentially. Um, and I mean, if even if you think about it, the jock at the very beginning of the movie that gets killed, that's kind of like that's an archetype that usually lives or is able to survive longer than other people because of their like perceived strength and athleticism and all these things. And he's the first person to get killed in the entire movie. Um I, do, I was really impressed by the overall casting, even though I knew, obviously, Drew Barrymore is in it, but she gets killed early, of course. But, I mean, Casey, uh, or rather Nev Campbell, who plays Sidney Prescott, is fantastic as this in the lead. Um, I wasn't super familiar with her work, but she is somebody that you can see being a final girl as soon as you meet her, right? This idea that her character is very kind of like emotionally unavailable in a lot of ways, like very traumatized from her mother, obviously being brutally murdered and raped, uh, which takes place a year prior to this. And then she's still somebody that you can see as rising above being kind of just like another victim, right? To Ghostface. Um, but I think Billy is another great casting choice. I mean, originally his role was supposed to be filled by Joaquin Phoenix, but then they ultimately went with him because uh, they went with Skeet Ulrich to play Billy because he looks like Johnny Depp. And obviously Wes Craven filmed The Nightmare on Elm Street, which Johnny Depp was in also, which is kind of a little uh, 
a little snippet into their backstory. But for me, I think my favorite character is probably Stuart or Stu, who's played by Matthew Lillard. He is just such a goofy, manic, out of bounds character that I was pretty interested to learn. Like he ad libbed a bunch of his lines. And I think it's really telling because his character has the most kind of like pound for pound unexpected moments, but also like hilarious moments that you don't even know really why they're hilarious sometimes. It's just the way that he kind of like presents everything as being so over the top, I think really fits well with the film that kind of carries itself as a traditional slasher. No, 100%. I mean, I think the really unique thing that, that Wes Craven did in this is that he gives us little breadcrumbs that start to point the direction at multiple people for they could be ghost face in that sense, right? And um, at least for me, Stu was one of the more, I would say, lesser kind of uh, targets that I would think would have would have been able to do such a thing. In that first half of the movie, did you have any kind of thoughts on who it was? Like, were you aiming more towards Billy or um, like kind of what was your thought in, in that regard? I think that's what I was most surprised by in that the film is so good at maintaining the mystery element of it because, I mean, how many, this is again, another trope that Wes Craven's taking the piss out of, which is generally in slashers, like you have a pretty clear indication of who could be behind it early on, right? But in this, there's enough redirects and reasonable doubt presented that you really don't know. And I don't see how you could guess the ending. Like you have Billy who drops the cell phone, You have even like Henry Winkler, who plays the high school teacher, who apparently like hates teenagers. And he's like he's uh, putting scissors in students faces and like cutting up their scream mask or their ghost face mask. And then even like the cop who's the main sheriff, not Dewey, but the uh, the sheriff of the station, he is wearing like the same boots as Ghostface does. So there's all these little misdirects that you really can't be quite sure who it is, even if you start to form your own opinions like. I always assumed that it was Randy just because he is the like the nerdy guy that knows all of this movie trivia. And the one connecting thing behind all the different phone calls is that it's a guy quizzing people on movies. But then again, the more you watch the movie and you kind of understand more what the movie is going for, this idea that it would be somebody that obvious doesn't make sense after a while because you get like 40 minutes in the movie and you're like, OK, everything this movie does is so aware of what it's doing it can't be that simple. Um, But yeah, I definitely thought it was Randy at first, but uh, I was happy to see that it does not end up being him and it ends up being the two characters that you would least expect. But in terms of going back to kind of the more meta moments of the movie, what did you think of all of the kind of referential humor, but also like genre references in the movie? Was that something that as someone that enjoys horror movies, but maybe hasn't necessarily seen like quote unquote all the classics. Did you find that kind those kinds of references funny, helpful to the overall tone, or were they kind of um, off putting? I definitely wouldn't say that they were off putting. I thought they were, um, you know, kind of more humorous than anything. Um, right? Uh, you know, I look at scary movie. Ironically, does a trope on screen, and you know, when I was watching this, I kind of 
for some reason in my head, I thought that Neve Campbell was playing on to Pamela Anderson because I hadn't seen these movies in a long time. Um, so, you know, stuff like that where I just had to kind of go back into my, my memory box to think of some of the tropes that they were kind of going off of. Um, but again, I, I think that it just did a really good job, again, in terms of, you know, keeping the storyline somewhat light and humorous. While, again, there's a very dark overtone of, you know, although that this is, you know, uh, a high school slasher movie, we are talking about someone that, you know, potentially uh, murdered and raped a woman and then got uh, a killer, a person falsely accused of it. Um, so the more it starts building to that reality that, uh, was it Chase was the gentleman that they put away? I forget what it is. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. He's played by Lee Schreiber, actually, which is a random cameo. Great cameo, nonetheless. Um, but, uh, you know, I think just to that effect, if they, again, you know, if they went too much on the horror angle, I think it would have made those comedic moments a little bit out of place. Um, but again, the way that they were able to move the storyline over, I think it did a really good balancing act, like you said, of kind of straying in that middle area where it's not overtly funny and then the, the horror scenes look ridiculous and vice versa. Um, the the funny scenes are completely out of place, you know, in, in between the kind of dark and gory kind of scenes there. Yeah, and I, what I really love about a lot of the humor is that all of the thing, all the tropes that the film is playing off of or bringing to light and kind of, again, making fun of are things that, considering how long Wes Craven's career was, he's able to look back at his career and in a lot of different ways, kind of like pick out specific moments that are probably things that he has been guilty of in his past films. You have the cheesy teen romance. You have somebody being framed for a murder. You have kind of like the typical things that teens and slashers do where they go to try to run out the front door and the door's locked so they can't get there and get out of there. And I mean, it's it seems very cathartic in a lot of ways and it speaks to his ability as a director to be like, yeah, I've made enough movies and in certain moments, my movies have been guilty of these things in the past too. And still being able to make fun of those things and bring those things to light, I just thought was really refreshing. And it kind of speaks to this idea that somebody that was not as secure with their talent and their filmmaking as Wes Craven was, would not have been able to make this movie nearly as successful and streamlining it in terms of like it being funny and accessible to everybody. Because again, all of those different horror references that I mentioned, not everybody that watches this movie is going to know what Suspiria is, which is referenced, which is like a horror movie from the seventies, late seventies. But at the same time, it does enough to kind of allow everybody it doesn't alienate people that aren't fans of the franchise right and i think that's the beauty of the movie in that it has that overly familiar setup and essentially it is a very overly familiar framework for the entire movie and yet the humor is very accessible and i think that speaks again to like you said the characters that are so excellent in being exactly what you expect and then in their casting they're made in a, they're made out to be very much more relatable but also just entertaining in general like again matthew lillard when he gets stabbed and he's bleeding at the end and he starts bleeding out and he goes i'm getting woozy here man like it's a completely bananas lines like why would that be something that somebody would say but his ability to sell that line is a line that everybody can laugh at even if at that moment you're just like that was a strange choice of words and it is but 
that strange choice of words, I think, makes the movie very funny at moments that you wouldn't think it would be funny. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, to that point too, right? You're looking at um, the catalog of Wes Craven movies. He he had Nightmare on Elm Street, as you mentioned. He had The Hills Have Eyes. And he has Scream. He has a couple other ones as well, obviously. But I would figure those three are kind of his most iconic movies that he's done. And they all have a very interesting niche that they they kind of go along, right? The Hills of Eyes is a monster movie set in the middle of nowhere. Um, Night, Night, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is, is a dream, essentially, where, um, you know, an evil character is killing people. And then this is a, a you know, a high school horror slasher. Um, it's very interesting to see how he jumps from one to another. Um, but he does it in such a unique way where they're very separate from each other, but you still have overtones of some of those movies in there. Um, I wanted to ask you, since this is a 96 movie, and I, I believe they are coming out with another Scream movie. I think it's in 2022, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it just got delayed to 2022. Uh, hashtag thank you, COVID. Um, but uh, do you think that they would be able to make this kind of – like? You know, if this wasn't a franchise already, could they make this kind of a movie in the 2020s? Or is this, you know, a solely kind of a 90s movie that would have to have kind of flourished from there? Yeah, so that's like the big question, right? And the movie itself is even funny to watch. The original Scream is funny to watch in 2020 for the first time for me because Billy Loomis is the main suspect because he's got a cell phone at one point. And it's like, I had to laugh out loud at that moment because it's just like everybody has a cell phone. And even when he's being interrogated by the cops, the cops like, what are you doing with the cell phone with the cellular phone? And it's just like it's something that doesn't translate to 2020. And yet it is very much tied into the idea of how this could happen. Right. You would need to be having a cell phone to be communicating with somebody outside of their house. And that in that instance, like the Scream movies, I haven't seen obviously uh, two through four yet, but Speaking of the original one, like the use of cell phones as technology as being like advanced technology uh, in big air quotes is very intricate. And it's a timestamp moment in that it is essentially the driving factor of the movie, right? It's, that's why it's creepy because the call's not coming from inside the house because then they would just be on your phone. It's coming from outside of the house. It's somebody watching you from the woods out in the dark, which is a terrifying concept of that. Nowadays, like it could happen, but at the same time, you would almost expect it to happen just because that's how people communicate via cell phones now. So for them to adapt Scream for a 2020 movie, they have to be cognizant of technology now. And that movie is going to be 100% reliant on the their ability to translate the Scream identity and formula, still make it self-referential and very much meta-horror and yet use that technology in an interesting way. And I think that's really like the make or break thing for that movie. It helps that a lot of the returning cast are going to be coming back. But even if they didn't have the returning cast coming back, which I mean, I don't know how you could do the movie without like Nev Campbell and people returning. But at the same time, it's the use and the approach with technology that I think will be the most telling because I think, did you see Child's Play, which came out last year, the Chucky reboot? I have. Yeah, I did. Okay. So that was a movie that people were divided on because Chucky is adapted for the 21st century in being essentially like a an AI doll that has an Alexa type system inside of him. And it, a lot of the, the chief complaint to that was, 
oh, Child's Play now is just feels like an episode of Black Mirror. It's technology gone awry, which I thought worked in terms of a modern uh, adapting and reimagining. For me, that worked. But for Scream, I have a feeling that if they don't adapt the technology as succinctly or make it as integral to the underlying story as it was in the original, I think a lot of people will be uh, off put by that. But I mean, for me, I'm I'm always championing movies that are being brought to the 21st century that are being modernized in a way that is unique rather than kind of like relying on the old way of doing things in terms of like, I don't want a shot for shot remake or shot for shot continuation of a sequel for the future. I want something that feels new, that feels fresh, that feels like it's advanced in some way. I mean, basically all they need to do is have the characters use T-Mobile and they'll have service unavailable. As a T-Mobile subscriber, I can attest to that. But, you know, going towards the end, I mean, you know, we've gone through now multiple waves of guessing of who the the killers were and and it does end up being Stu and and Billy Loomis. Um, What did you think of that ending and and did you like it, Uh, you know? Did you think that it was kind of a, a good way to wrap the film up or um, were you thinking that there was something kind of lacking at the end there? I mean, I liked it just because it was so surprising and that it's not something that you can guess, right? You can't guess that. And purposefully, it's it's made so you can't guess that. There's lots of little kind of breadcrumbs and kernels of information that are laid out throughout the film. But again, all the misdirections essentially make all of that information impossible to decipher in a lot of ways. Like there's no way that you would be able to guess that it was definitely Stu that killed Casey Becker the being in the movie because she broke up with him to date uh, the jock from the beginning. I think his name was Stephen Orth. And there's no way that you can know that Nev Campbell's mother was sleeping with Billy Loomis's father. Like you are aware of the fact that her mother was being unfaithful, but we have no idea that she is the reason that broke up Billy's family. So and they, the two of them, who it turns out it's Stu and Billy who are the killers, they've been behind a ghost face. They even say like, what's more, it's uh, more confusing when there's no motivation, right? So they say like this whole idea stems from the idea that they watched a bunch of horror movies, took a bunch of notes, and that kind of is what inspired them to do this in a lot of ways. And then they go out and they uh, settle personal vendettas that they have with other people. Um, for me, I liked that. I liked that I couldn't guess it. Um, I think both humor wise and in terms of kind of just the horror narrative, it works really well. I mean, it's the ending of the film is like the bloodiest moment of the movie where Billy and Stu start stabbing each other to make it look like they've been attacked as well and they're survivors. And in terms of that moment at the end of the movie, do you think that Billy was trying to kill Stu? Because they're not supposed to cut each other that deep. And they even both say that, like, don't cut me that deep. And then... Billy cuts Stu like six times as deep as you could to the point we get that scene where Stu is like, I'm getting woozy here, man. Well, I think it's two parts, right? One, they're obviously crazy. Um, So when Stu in his infinite wisdom, uh, I think he cut Billy in an area where he shouldn't have. Um, I think the, uh, the quote was, you know, go to the side and not too deep essentially. And it seemed like he hit him right in the midsection. Right. Um, that's on cue completely with Stu's character that he's a kind of a naive goofball. Um, and you know, when Billy starts stabbing him more a couple times, I think to your point, 
Billy's obviously the smarter of the two, and he realizes that if all else fails, it's better that I'm the last one that's alive, so at least my story is ironclad. Um, but that whole idea that Billy was dating Sydney, he went out and raped and murdered her mom because she was cheating on uh, on or his dad was cheating on his mom with, with Sydney's mom. And that whole kind of concept went out for a year and then he almost killed Sydney. I, I hate, and I love that whole thing. Right. Cause it points to the idea of just, you know, this is what horror movies should be about. Those kind of crazy twists and turns. Um, but again, from, again, from a storytelling perspective, I think they did it just to get a really good job of portraying those two personalities that were so different. Um, and again, I think it was uh, Stu's last scene on, on camera where um, Sydney's run away and she's kind of taunting them. And he starts, you know, asking her in this, you know, kind of a crybaby voice, you know, did you really call the police? I don't <laughs> think they're yeah. be happy about that. Like, dude, you killed like 20 people. <laughs> That's right. your concerns, right? Um, so again, it kind of goes back to the idea that these aren't masterminded killers necessarily. These are just horny teens that you know they again watched one too many horror movies i love that finale too just because it gives us some of the best matthew lillard ad-libbed lines where i mean he has the gun on the table and then he goes back to get the gun to kill sydney's father and kill sydney because they want to frame sydney's father as if he was the one that was kind of like guilt-ridden over his mother's his not his mother that was a freudian slip of the tongue there his wife was being murdered he couldn't handle it and cracked and then Stu turns around to get the gun that Sydney's got, and he goes, uh, Houston, we have a problem. Like that was ad-libbed. And that's just one of those things that it just makes his character seem so insane. And the fact that his insanity doesn't kind of come out as just brooding murder like Billy does, it's just a nice contrast of humor to darkly fucked up disturbing moments. And uh something funny that I read was that Nev Campbell and Matthew Lillard actually were dating during the filming of the movie. And so in that last scene, when she is about to kill me, goes, I always had a thing for you. And then she goes as if and drops the TV on his head. Like that's just one of those little uh, cherry on top moments that I think really solidifies his character and just how I don't even want to say like outlandish, but his character just had every moment of dialogue is not wasted with Matthew Lillard and uh, Stuart, which I really loved. Um, it's just a movie that I think, again, it really capitalizes on the high school angle. And I don't think there's any other slasher that quite comes across like that in terms of its antagonist. In terms of not bef before the reveal, when we know that it's Stu and we know that it's Billy, Ghostface himself does not seem like a professional at all. And that comes down, it, it aids two things. It aids the idea that these are not masterminds, like you said, because like I mentioned earlier, he gets fucked up the entire movie. He gets knocked on his ass. He gets kicked in the dick. He gets beer bottle smashed over his face. But before you even look at kind of like the grunts and the ways that he reacts to getting hit. So clearly he's not immortal, but just look at his wardrobe. Like he looks like he's wearing a Halloween costume. He's wearing a corny fucking mask. I, there's nothing scary to me about that mask. Maybe because I've seen scary movie before I saw this movie, which is like a mortal sin. I would assume many would think, but, um, it's one of those things where I don't think that the character is necessarily scary to look at. It's more about complimenting Wes Craven's overall mission with the film. And I just think it's very funny that the producer, one of the producers, I believe, was um, 
what was his name? Yeah, one of the producers was Bob Weinstein, and he watched the early uh, cuts, like the first dailies for that opening moment. And he said that the mask that they used was idiotic. He said it wasn't scary in one of those things. And he told them that they should refilm the opening sequence with like seven different masks till they found the one that was scary. And the producers basically said, you don't know what you're talking about. We're not going to do that. And we'll shut down the production. And it kind of just shows you that you can have good producers and then you can have producers who see a product, a product as being a money pit or being a, it being a cash grab on a genre because there's a hot name director attached to it. At no point in this movie should uh, Ghostface be considered scary. That's not the type of movie this is. If he's scary, then the movie doesn't come across as being meta humor and all of these referential bits are going to be wasted because people are going to be too tired being scared or they're going to be too focused on being scared rather. It's a film that I think it's it has to be such a delicate balance between those two genre influences that it makes sense why the antagonist looks like is not scary to me. I mean, is he scary to you? No, no, no. I mean, th- I think what the the character does um, in terms of Ghostface, he obviously um, he brings about anxiety for people because we know that something crazy is going to happen whether someone dies or not. But it's different than again when you see a zombie, for instance, and or you're like, okay, where are the rest of them and stuff like that. There's an innate horror behind that. There's more of a horror behind Ghostface, what's going to happen than the actual character itself. Right. Yeah. And I think that the strength of the film in terms of Ghostface being an antagonist is that just because he himself is almost like a clown and has these slapsticky moments where he's reacting like a normal person and it demystifies in a lot of ways this idea that he is an, Im- an immovable or impenetrable force, much like a Michael Myers a Jason Voorhees, a Freddy Krueger, it kind of just speaks to the idea that the film is constructed with this sort of meta direction in focus 100% of the time. There's not a single moment to this film where Wes Craven loses track of the drive of the film and what is pushing the film into the direction that it's supposed to be going. Because if he does mess that balance up, the entire movie falls apart and this becomes another horror slasher or just a horror movie on his resume, right? And by 96, you have to imagine he's done making just conventional genre movies that he's just cashing in on now because he's the director of A Nightmare of Elm Street, a director of The Hills Have Eyes and all these different movies. So the idea that he's able to maintain that really delicate balance for almost two hours, again, that's something that kind of deviates from the slasher formula in that I would say probably 85% of slashers are 90 minutes or less just because by that mark, nobody is scared anymore, right? I mean, you plus who wants to watch Jason Voorhees get knocked down and stand back up again for two hours? Like nobody wants to watch that. So the idea that the movie is even longer than a general slasher and then it has that multi-layered complex ending that it does in compared to what you would expect it to have, I think really speaks to the idea to meet expectations, to defy expectations, and then to kind of cap the whole thing off in a direction that you could not see coming in a really satisfying way. A hundred percent. I mean, to that effect too, right? It, it wouldn't be a slasher film if there weren't a bunch of crazy good deaths. What was your kind of more iconic one or what, what's the you know most favorite one in that kind of regard? So 
I think my two favorite scenes are the two that we already talked about. The first one is definitely the cold open with Drew Barrymore, right? Like I said before, it's very standard, kind of what you would expect. But then Wes Craven's able to implement genuinely creepy moments in that while never really letting it become too serious or the kind of genre standard that you would expect it to be, right? He manages to defy expectations in even the most predictable kind of presentations of a scene. And I think that that is a really great instance of backing up that self-aware humor and lots of referential humor with one of the goriest moments of the film. And it's telling that this movie was originally going to be NC-17 because they were going to have a lot more gory moments like that with Drew Barrymore hanging from the tree and her entrails are hanging out. Or like, that's the goriest part of the movie, I think. And to get that in the first 15 minutes, it just sets the tone so well for the entire movie because it sets the expectations super high in terms of the gore. And then while it never necessarily reaches that level again, it still gives you enough of these kind of quality kills and quality effects that you're never able to kind of discredit the horror element to the overall movie. What was one of yours? And then we'll come back to one of mine. Sure. Um, I like the, well, no, I'll save that one for later, but um, uh, Rose McGowan, um, who plays Tatum Riley, her death on the, um, the garage door. Um, I love that. And I hated that for so many reasons. Um, I actually, one of the reasons I got a little bit bigger as a child was to prevent that kind of a death should it ever occurred. Um, so, you know, I, I think that was, you know, although it's, I don't think one of the more iconic moments of the movie, at least to me, when I thought of Scream, that's one of the top two or three things that I first think of of it. I mean, that's one of those scenes that it's a hilarious way for somebody to die. And yet the actual moment of her getting crushed is presented like the, the five seconds before she gets killed, that whole sequence in that five seconds to 15 seconds or whatever is presented like a horror movie, right? The the moment leading up to that is hilarious. Like she thinks that Ghostface is one of her friends in a mask and everything, and then ends up with her throwing beer bottles at him and kicking him in the dick, which is all very slapstick Three Stooges-esque and it's funny. And then it ends in a horrific death of her getting crushed to death in, elect in a uh, electric garage door. So again, that's a fantastic example of Craven's ability to balance these two things, these two moods and these two usually conflicting experiences within a horror movie. And it just all melds together in a really satisfying way. But uh, my other favorite one is the stab off between Billy and Stu. Uh, and it's such a confusing and brutal moment in terms of, are they trying to kill each other? Are they that psychotic that they achieve their goal essentially? And then they're like, Oh, there's one loose end. It's the other guy, my partner in crime. And that is a, brilliant scene in terms of balancing the humor and the fact that they're stabbing each other way harder and way deeper than they should be. But then at the same time, they're like leaking blood everywhere and it's really gruesome. I mean, stabbing is probably like one of the most painful ways you could ever die in a movie. So the idea that you start off, it's, you treat the whole thing like a joke, like Stu does. Stu is like laughing and making jokes and then he gets stabbed one too many times and he starts uh, getting woozy and all these different things that it adds humor to a disturbing moment, which ultimately makes for a super disturbing scene that you're not quite sure, should I laugh? Should I squirm in my seat? How should I be reacting to this? Because the way I'm reacting to it is almost as confusing as the mood and atmosphere while that scene's unfolding. Well, to that point, right, the other kill that 
that I loved and I, again, hated the most of this movie, we don't even actually, well, we see the 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 death of the principal, right? Uh, but played by Henry Wrinkler, I believe. But when um, they get a call to uh, to the party house and Randy's on the phone and he tells, you know, however many people are left there that um, they found the principal like hung up on the football field goalpost. And again, it, it's a horrifying thing, but those, you know, those teenagers, you know, start, you know, laughing about it and run off to go f- to actually see it before it gets taken down. That speaks to your point of it's a moment where, again, I think narrative wise, it's phenomenal because it, it's a actually really good way to get everybody out of the house outside of our main characters. Right. Uh, serves a purpose to that effect. But as a as a human being, I mean, older adults. Right. Um, we look at this and we're like, that's ridiculous. But again, we know, unfortunately, a couple, you know, numbskulls from high school that I don't know if necessarily they would have done that, but we know that they would have been, you know, in that kind of realm of personality to potentially do that. Um, again, it moves in a pace where it's not completely unfathomable that that could happen. And I think that's one of the main tropes that happens in horror movies where something happens that's so unbelievable that ruins the movie. There's consistently kills and scenes where everything is believable to a point again, where that is why this is such a good horror movie. It doesn't need to be overt in that sense, but um, it, it just does a really good job of keeping it somewhat realistic to, to how things can play out that way. Yeah. The, and the idea that the whole film is constructed with this singular drive in mind that it's taking the piss out of the entire genre and whether that be movies Wes Craven did make or didn't make and that kind of catharsis in getting to bring to light or rectify some of the mistakes or rather exposing some of the things that he did in past films that are very much like genre tropes. It also works as a really smart plot device, right? Like you said, he's able to get everybody out of the house with that one phone call. And then they follow up that disturbing conversation. Like, yeah, he's hanging from a goalpost with his innards hanging out. Like, that's an incredibly disturbing thing to think about. And then all the kids are like, yo, let's go check it out. And it's and that scene is followed up by uh, Randy lying on the couch watching Halloween by himself saying like, oh, turn around, Jamie Lee Curtis, turn around. And then Michael Myers is right behind her. And then who comes in the door behind him? It's Ghostface. So it's really interesting to see them go from disturbing moments to humor to a referential humor from a horror movie in a package and in a way that, yeah, it's self-serving at every point in turn, but it's done in a really satisfying way that is cognizant throughout. And the presentation of the film, I think, is one of the strongest angles, right? It's not filmed like a comedy. It's not filmed like a drama. It's filmed very much like a horror movie. And you get those kind of rotoscope moments where the camera starts to pan in a lot of interesting, unique angles and things like that in a way that builds tension, even if what's happening is layered in humor or referential humor at almost like every point in turn. To to that point, though, real quick, that was one of the funniest moments to me, not just because, again, of you know, how many times we've seen that in, in movies in terms of um, Randy Meeks played by Jamie Kennedy looking at a screen or at a screen saying, you know, turn around or whatnot. Right. Um, but the fact that 
his name is Jamie and he's saying turn around Jamie to Jamie Lee Curtis. I just thought that was a really fun play on words that the, um, you know, the director and the, um, you know, writers did in that sense to really kind of hit home that what you're pointing about, that this is a, a, a horror movie that has very, very funny scenes that don't necessarily uh, aren't necessarily supposed to be that way it is it's not overt, but it's kind of under the radar. Yeah. And yet that, seeing that gag works in for both fans right it doesn't alienate horror fans that have no idea or not horror fans rather just people that have no context about halloween michael myers any of that stuff you can still laugh at that scene because the killer is sneaking up on somebody that's watching a movie right at a base level that is not an alienating scene even though it's heavily reliant on referential humor and that's the strongest sign of anything that uses referential humor in that the worst movies or the worst comedies specifically for me are ones that all the jokes are based around news that's happened over the course of a year or course of the last six months, right? Because in six months, that humor is not going to be relevant anymore. This movie is taking the piss out of an entire genre, which has been around for however many number of decades. And it's very multi-layered in that on a surface level, you can laugh at the gags no matter who you are or what your experiences are. For somebody like me that watches horror movies constantly. And even though I not having seen Scream was a pretty big omission from my watch list, I've seen enough that when they mention Hellraiser, when they mention Carrie, when they mention Halloween, I've seen those. So those jokes are heightened in a certain sense for me. Like I'm able to relate to them more than people who haven't seen them. And yet the gag as, uh, as it is on its own, I think still hits the mark more often than it doesn't. Like there aren't many moments in this film where I was listening to a joke or something. And I was like, man, that was really corny without realizing that like Wes Craven is intentionally making it corny. He's intentionally putting eyes on the fact that like, yeah, the last 60 or 70 years of horror movies, people have presented these same types of scenes in a way that they thought was really meaningful when in actuality to a viewer, you're like, this is incredibly cringy and corny and dumb. Like the scene when, uh, Sydney and Billy are making out in her room and uh, that blue cult oyster song, or I think that's the band's name, but anyways, they start making out and that song starts playing and you're like, this is incredibly corny. And then you're like, yeah, this is a scene from every single slasher movie, teen slasher that's ever been made. A couple's making out to a, to a song that is over the top singing about Romeo and Juliet when it's just two horny teens that kind of want to bang. You know what I mean? So it's not, it, comparing their romance to that of Romeo and Juliet is uh, quite a stretch. I mean, it, it ends up almost working out that they both both die at the end, to be fair. But, um, you know, looking back now that you've seen this, would you do you think a second, third, fourth are warranted or would you have been more satisfied if they kept it to this one kind of a movie? So that's the thing, right? And this is what I'm excited about and checking out. Uh, Scream 2, 3, and 4, and seeing how they're able to reinvent all of the different tropes and things like that in a way that doesn't just feel repetitive, right? It's I'm super excited that the cast, a majority of the cast that survived from Scream is returning for Scream 2, right? Because otherwise, I don't know how well it's going to work because we have this established core characters that, we're re- that I'm really taken with in a way that uh, I'm not with a lot of slasher characters. It obviously like Wes Craven returning is a huge plus. I think this is the only franch slasher franchise that the same director returned for all of them. 
generally like you have like Wes Craven himself. Look at Wes Craven with Nightmare on Elm Street. He made the first one. He sold the rights. They made a bunch of sequels that he himself has said he was not a fan of. Uh, and they even make that joke in Scream where he has one of the characters who's talking about a Nightmare on Elm Street be like, yeah, the first one was good, but then all those sequels really sucked. So <laughs> you kind of know his feelings on that. But to see him return to a franchise that he started, I'm really excited to see and how if he's able to continue that self-aware nature and not kind of just rest on the laurels of the original Scream. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to see how the other Screams turn out. But uh, I have some half-assed research facts I want to share with you before we uh, wrap up. So ironically enough, Scream was originally titled Scary Movie, which <laughs> is completely bonkers considering we know that Scary Movie became a whole spoof franchise that I think they made five sequels. And it's basically, when you compare what Scream is to what Scary Movie is, it kind of just exposes how prevalent Scream is in terms of doing what Scary Movie should have done, right? The Scary Movies are littered with referential humor to the time period and to pop culture, whereas Scream is using referential humor of an entire genre. And obviously genre spans, again, however many decades it's been around for, which means that when you return to the Scream, I don't know, 20 plus years after it's released, a lot of that holds up because the things it's making fun of are the pillars of a genre. Whereas Scary Movie, it's a lot of it is pop culture from a specific era. So when you go back to watch Scary Movie, which I did, I don't know, a couple, a handful of years ago, I rewatched the first two. A lot of it is like gags on celebrities of the time period of pop culture, of commercials, like the first Scream, or sorry, the first Scary Movie. There's that whole gag where the characters get Ghostface to go, what's up? which is was like a Budweiser commercial, I think, from back in the 90s. But it's like, if you watch that in 2010, 2020, you're going to be like, I have no basis for this at all. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, obviously, you and I were born in the 90s, so we were probably a little more familiar with that humor. But for somebody that was born in 2010 or whatever, they're going to be like, yeah, that's weird. I don't have any basis for this at all. I was surprised to learn that the party scene, which runs for 42 minutes. I didn't realize that at all. That kind of speaks to just how well the film is paced, like that end party sequence. It took them 21 days and they would shoot from sunset to sunrise, which you don't realize it at first, but that scene goes on for a very long time and yet it doesn't outstay its welcome at all. You know what I mean? It's not kind of like they have that chase sequence around Sidney Prescott's house and that goes on for 30 minutes, whereas the end party scene does a really good job of kind of mixing in kills with characters exposing kind of like the horror rules, which uh, Randy goes over to the whole crowd and they're throwing popcorn and stuff at him when he says no sex, no drugs, no drinking. Uh, all those things that will ensure that if you do them, you get killed. So it's just another example of Wes Craven really being able to kind of layer many levels into something that on paper, it's a party that goes on for 42 minutes on page. There's so many different nuanced levels that kind of continue the film's overall drive while also kind of keying in a lot of interesting character dynamics in a film that, again, is set up to be very conventional and yet defies that at almost every point in terms of that finale. So interesting enough, the voice of Ghostface, who's played by Roger Jackson, was never allowed to meet any of the actors. 
because Wes Craven thought that it would make Ghostface obviously that much more terrifying. So they had those be actual cell phone conversations or actual phone conversations between the actresses and actors and Ghostface himself, um, which I think it comes across in terms of how Nev Campbell and both Drew Barrymore play those scenes. Uh, it comes off as very tense and you can tell from their performance that it's somebody they're not familiar with, right? Because if they could put a face to Ghostface, then it's ultimately going to be less scary. It's going to be harder to fake that you have an idea of what this person looks like. Like for me, I get anxiety talking to people on the phone that I don't know for the first time, like interviews or whatever, because you don't know what they look like. And obviously they're not threatening me on the other end of the line, but it's just this idea of like the unknown. It makes some, it makes an interaction more intimidating. So while I might be intimidated by a phone conversation with somebody, I don't know what they even look like. Imagine how much more intimidating I am if they're telling me they're going to gut me like a fish or something. Right. Such as Ghostface does. Mm -hmm. And one last Drew Barrymore little fact. To get her constantly crying and upset during that opening scene, Wes Craven would tell her real life stories about animal cruelty and abuse because she's such an animal activist, which like on the face of it, like that's kind of, it's kind of funny. But at the same time, you're like, Damn that the nineties and eighties and seventies were such a different time for filmmaking where directors would be like, I'm going to do some traumatizing shit to get a reaction out of you. And it's all, I'm just going to say it's for the benefit of my film, no matter how upset you get. So it's one of those little time capsules for me that you can't not laugh a little bit at hearing it, but at the same time, you're like, man, how fucking traumatic was that for somebody to have be subjected to that from a director? I, I don't want to throw too much of a curveball into this conversation, but that reminds me of Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm, where to try and cry, he keeps repeating, my dog is dead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I don't know if that's kind of a gag on Wes Craven to this, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess whatever you can do to, to make a scene as realistic as possible, bravo to them for doing that. And then to end out kind of my half-assed research, Wes Craven got a little salty during the making of Scream in that in the special thanks section of the credits of the film, he said, no thanks whatsoever to the Santa Rosa City School District Governing Board because they were supposed to film those high school scenes of all the kids at Santa Rosa High School in California, which the high school agreed to. And then they found out that this is not a comedy, it's a horror comedy. And when they found out about all the violence in the movie, they basically pulled all of the acceptance letter that they had given them saying, yeah, you can come shoot here. Once they found out like, Oh, teenagers are going to be absolutely gutted in this film. So shame on Santa Rosa. Oh, and also one, one final, final uh, little Easter egg. Wes Craven actually makes a cameo in the movie where when Henry, Henry Winkler sticks his head out of the office door and he sees the janitor named Fred, who's wearing the Freddy Krueger outfit. That's Wes Craven. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. That's one of those kind of little uh, Easter egg cameos that I think it, again, it speaks to Wes Craven being able to laugh at himself. And that's one thing in revisiting a lot of older movies. I can't stand directors that come out as being like, I'm making the most serious, important thing that's ever been made. And I'm un unwilling to admit faults at any step or turn of my film or project and you cannot laugh at anything I've done ever, even if it's a, like everything outside of a comedy, obviously. But it's just one of those little cameos that I think it reinforces this idea that Wes Craven is accepting of his faults. He's willing to make fun of not only a genre that he's been so prevalent in, but 
to some extent, his own work in certain ways, right? Like he's when anybody makes any certain number of films that have been heavily prominent in a specific genre, you have adhered to some of the tropes of that genre. It's unavoidable, no matter what your intention are intentions are with the genre itself. So to see him kind of like throw himself in there in such an obvious cameo in terms of him being Fred and wearing the Freddy Krueger outfit, like I get more meaning out of that. And I find that actually more humorous, even though it is an obvious gag in terms of like, yeah, why wouldn't he do that gag? It's not surprising, but it kind of just overall speaks to his comfortability with, hey, this is a meta horror film. We're going to be making fun of a lot of these things that a lot of people make fun of. And we're accepting of that because it's kind of who, not so much, I guess, yeah, it's part of who we are and it's part of being involved in this genre entails. Now, have you seen the other two kind of classics that Wes Craven's done, The Nightmare on Elm Street and um, The Hills of Eyes? Yeah, so I've seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I've seen Hills of Eyes. I'm also a fan of uh, his film, The People Under the Stairs, I believe, which came out in the early 90s. Uh, Yeah, so I'm a fan of his movies and a lot of his movies have really unique ideas behind them, which I love. Um, And so that's kind of what makes me so excited to check out Scream 2 through 4 in that Scream for me, in terms of the films that I've seen in his filmography, is the most jarringly different, right? It's the first one that is taking the piss again out of horror movies. So it's the most distant from anything I've seen of his before. And that excites me because I want to see how he builds on that. And again, I don't know the particulars of the other sequels. I know that there's a fan base around them and fans embrace them, which is certainly not the case with all slasher sequels. So that has me really excited. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting to see what, what comes up for it uh, for Scream 2 for us, man. Have you seen any of the sequels? I've seen Scream 2. I can't recall if I've seen Scream 3 and 4. Um, okay. It was so long ago, but uh, it's going to be a nice refresher to kind of go over this this uh, horror fan base with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to check it out. And uh, I'm happy that you agreed to uh, to come on this uh, series review journey with me. So thanks again, man. No, of course. My pleasure, buddy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.